Uh, so during the Super NES days, uh, how big was your department? Like how big was the company? Uh, uh, you know, approximately during the peak, how many people that were working there? About 125 people. Sounds uh, like a lot. Contract, yeah, with contractors on the outside too. Yeah. Um, programmers on the outside and artists. Yeah, we, we were doing a lot of games. We were development for other but right. we were doing a lot of internal um, and we had acquired games from other from other companies that we were publishing. So we probably had a pretty good art department. Glenn was our art director who ran that department. Um, and we probably had uh, 15 people in that department. Then we had a programming department with lead programmers and, and junior programmers and uh, uh, programmers who were still learning the tasks yeah. at, at becoming, you know, really good programmers. So, so comparing this company back to when you were at Activision, um, you know, are there like pros and cons that come to mind about like you know, like visitors, like the size or the or the size of the companies or, or companies or, or companies like the advantages that maybe that maybe a small company had versus a larger one or a larger one or anything like that? It's interesting when I joined Activision, um, one of the founders. Um, talked to me at one of the trade shows, and I said, "So, so how, how you know?" How, and he said, "Well, you know, I kind of liked Activision when it was just four, <laughs> and, and now it's got all these people in the Eastern Design Center, and it's really not the same company." I, and I, I kind of understood that when I, when we built active uh, built um, Absolute Entertainment up. Um, they're just two different type of environments. Right. I enjoyed I enjoyed both, but sure, there was nothing like the beginning of Activision, where Gary, myself, and three other guys, um, kind of, you know, joined Activision, and it was just us from the basement that we worked in Gary's basement, and we moved on to Activision, and it was really just us, and we were a tight group we together and hang out together. Um, yeah, it's, it's very special. And it's always very special when one guy can sit um, with a game and create it. Um, right. As opposed to a team of, you know, 30 or 40 people or, or hundreds that it now takes. Right, exactly. So, um, so, uh, so just kind of wrapping things up here for Super NES. Um, oh, do you remember what your favorite games were like in the system? Like which games I like, really loved? Uh, on the Super NES, well, you know, I, I, I did, uh, uh, excuse me for the phone ringing in the background, I'm sorry. Um, I did always uh, um, love, I have to say, I always loved Super Battle Tank. That was, mm. that, that was one of our titles. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, Nintendo's, Nintendo titles were, were all incredible. Um, i trying to think of my, some of my favorite games. Um, Hmm. Well, obviously Mario, Mario World, Link. You know, I mean, you know, although Link was, Link was incredible. Um, I, I played a lot of the first party games. Uh, I love the rare titles. Oh yes, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Donkey Kong Country. Those guys are just amazing. Right. You know, they, those guys just could do so many cool titles uh, or so many cool things. Um. Uh. So yeah, I mean, I remember. Um, Obviously, Capcom and Disney's Aladdin on Super Nintendo was incredible. The Sega Genesis, I think, was a little better. Um, but I was into the Mega Man series. Uh, I was into R-Type. Um, I wasn't so much into the sports titles. I mean, I know they were cool, NBA Jam and the other ones. But I was more into the the arcade games. Right, yeah. Um, F-Zero was a very cool title as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say... You know, of my favorite, um, it's hard to say. You know, I think Zelda's one of the top ones, uh, and I think uh, I think the Mega Man series was was really cool. Right. Um, and of course, you know, Mario. Who can who can beat Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> I mean, seriously. You know, that yeah, was right. that, that was. You know, uh, we enjoyed making our games, but yeah. we enjoyed enjoyed playing that, those games better. Oh yeah, sure, of course, before. yeah. yeah. Uh, so I know you're also, ba- uh, so you're also like a fan of like, of like you know, flight, um, uh, uh, flight and airplane games. Uh, do you remember playing UN Squadron? Um, you know, that was like a, uh, you 
Uh, that was a that uh, uh, you know, that was a Capcom uh, side-scrolling a- action game, but like airplanes. I do remember seeing that. We had that in the lab. We would buy a lot of competitive games and obviously play them yeah. uh, when we were not, uh, you know, hard at our desk working or when we were busy trying to clear our head of of the current problems we were trying to solve. Right. But yes, I do remember that game. I don't recall what the screens looked like, but I remember seeing the cartridge. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to check it out. Um, like, so what are some of your like favorite flight games? Um, you know, I was into the Amiga. They had a great series of flight games. The F-18, F-A-18 Hornet. Uh, mm, I think okay. that was called on, on the Amiga. That was a lot of fun. I mean, I was an early adopter of the Microsoft. That's in middle. Yeah. Um, when those games came out, um, I actually took flight lessons for quite a while. So I, I uh, enjoyed actually flying. And so I would find it interesting to play the games and, and mm-hmm. find out how, uh, how closely the, they were to the real thing. Now, back then it was pretty restrictive. Right. Um, we, we didn't have a lot of processing speed. We couldn't do the type of things people do today. Um, but yeah, I, um, you know, as far as flight games, I played what I could on the Amiga, which I remember was the first one where there was a actual first-person aircraft carrier. Um, I think that was on the FA-18 game. Um, and, um, and we did some other ones. You know, we did games like uh, Commodore 64. We worked on Flight of the Intruder, um, which was a C-64 game. Um, I had done a version of Turn and Burn earlier with a programmer on the Game Boy. And then I think the best version I did of an F-14 fighter game was on the Game Boy mm. when I was at a company called Majesco. Right. I was actually able to do everything I wanted. Advances. Yeah. Uh, and they had that wacky, Nintendo had that wacky um, serial port where you could hook up Game Boy Advance games. Um, and so we had four-player combat in that. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and I remember one of the original flight games that I really, really liked was uh, Warbirds, done on the Atari Lynx by Rob Zadibble. Okay, yep, I know that game. Man, that game was cool. When you connected <laughs> four game systems up, that game just rocked. Uh, it was a biplane. It was a style biplane. And you really got a great sense of how the aircraft flew you could really stall the aircraft out you could you could just that was just a tremendous game so well written and i played days and months of combat with other people on that game <laughs> that was probably one of my favorite early uh, oh. flight simulators so did you play either back then or more recently uh b-17 bomber oh god yes on the b-17 bomber <laughs> on the uh sure on the um uh, I had a love of, of planes, particularly B-17, which brought me to the Confederate Air Force in the late 80s, early 90s. Actually, fly in B-17. Um, I have a great admiration for the 8th Air Force and knew a number of pilots back then who actually flew uh, sorties in World War II in mm. B-17s. Cool. Because having met a lot of the veterans. <laughs> so, yes, I remember playing a B-17 on a an television system we had in the office. Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't get a chance to play the game like until the flashback came out several years ago, but I was just like blown yeah. away by it because it's like to think a game this complicated came out back then was just amazing. Yes. Uh, and, uh, it had vo- and it had voice. Voice, yeah, exactly. So, but, yeah, it was very, very well done. Very but, well done. I, I had a chance on a very low budget to do a B seventeen game for the uh, game uh, for the Nintendo DS called B-17 Liberator, um, or I think it was called um, Fortress in the Sky, which was a B-17 game. Um, had to do it kind of quickly, but I think the combat worked out really well. And what was cool in that game is I had I used a lot of voice. Um, I used uh, voice actors. So every every seat in the aircraft had a had a, an AI character. And while you were in combat, you the uh, the waist gunner, or you could hear the tail gunner, or you could hear the uh, uh, the top of the, the turret gunner, the ball turret gunner, um, giving commands and yelling. You know the uh, the the uh, you know the aircraft is you know the target is flying underneath. 
or coming around to the left side, you know, waist gunner, get ready. And so it was kind of cool in about what was happening outside the sphere of the aircraft. Right, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. B-17 was... I didn't, didn't recall that until you brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, like, so you've worked on a lot of systems, uh, a lot of systems over the years, either like programming for it or, or programming for programming for it, like over super, I know, like or like overseeing work on it. Um, do you have like a favorite system, maybe that you work uh, on your favorite system or two uh, that you really have like you know like strong feelings for? Well, I gotta say the Atari. Of course, yeah, of course. I, I love writing for <laughs> first console system, and I just. You know, I get more joy out of writing code on that system than any other system. Um, I, yeah, I had worked on games on the Xbox One, uh, PS2, um, on the original Xbox. I mean, those are good. I, I would say, you know, the Game Gear also was a fabulous system. And it didn't have a lot of exposure. Mm. Um, but some of those games, uh, that system just, the architecture was fun. And the graphics are great, and a lot of the games were very fun on it. I had a chance at Majesco um, to work on a Bomberman Red. And, yes, on yep. that game. right, yeah. And those are just, you know, it's just a wicked system. Yes. I mean, that, that's Nintendo's systems, you know, are always so clean. You know, they're closed systems. It's not like open architecture. You never have to wait for the, except for the, um, you know, except for the, the, the GameCube, uh, you don't really, uh, you didn't really have to wait for the games, which everybody always loved that plug and play. Um, uh, the Game Boy Advance system, I produced over fifty-two games for while I was at Majesco. Um, if you go to my site at DanKitchenGames.com, take a look at the credits section under Game Boy Advance and Game Boy uh, um, Game Boy Game Boy Advance Game Boy Color and Nintendo DS. I was involved in almost a hundred games on those systems combined, and I, I thought the Game Boy Advance architecture was wonderful. Very cool display, very cool system, very nice packaged, you know, pocket system that you could take around. Um, I think the Switch is an incredible. You know, Nintendo has done it again and moved on to an, another incredible. Right. Um, they, they seem to have the, you know, they seem to have the the. Um, below the core core gamer market kind of sewn up yes exactly so they've always have and they they just come out with incredibly fun games right so uh, i would have to say you know the nintendo systems probably it's interesting i've been in the business for 40 years inevitably when i sit in front of a system plug a game in and i kind of always remember where i was and what that time um and they're all wonderful individually. Um, but, you know, I, I'd have to say the Atari 2600 system um, and probably, um, you know, probably the 8-bit NES. Yeah. Um, that just, we did a lot of games in that system. And, you know, that was, that was just a magical time to, to see the resurgence of the business we were in. And to see it begin to prosper really well. Yeah, because you know, I was going to ask you like the fact that you've been around for so long, like you've seen, it's like you've seen so much happen over the years, worked to, uh, uh, um, uh, like working like so many systems. Um, so, like, so you ever amazed that the industry is not only like, not only still around, but uh, still around today, but doing as well as it is, uh, considering everything you've gone through? No, I'm 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 not amazed that it's. Somebody once said this. I think it was David Crane, or somebody said to me that that man will always use his sophisticated technology to entertain himself. And so I knew video games would be around in some form. It's amazing the exponential leap they have taken. I mean, you know, I understand we're forty years past now, but you know, when you look at some of the games now that are, you know, and I've worked on some that have movie budget with mm, actors. Yeah. I've had the opportunity to. Um, with Nicolas Cage on um, Knight Rider. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not, I think it was um, not Knight um, Ghost Rider. Uh, I've had the chance to work on games like uh, Eon Flux with Charlize Theron. Um, in the 90s, in the middle to late 90s, I had 
where I primarily did the, you know, it was the days of the CD-ROM games, and I did a number of games kind of targeted to the girl category. I had the chance to work with Christy Yamaguchi, the Olympic skater. And then we were beginning to do motion capture, and I was one of the first companies that did mocap, captured her in an ice skating rink, and then created a game on a PC where, where children could pick various poses from her and create her Olympic style routine and then sit back, hit a button and watch it play on their game system like it was a worldwide world of sports ABC presentation where you, know, you would see her glide across the ice with beautiful camera, camera moves and whatnot. And that was kind of the beginning of doing incredible capture in the middle 90s and now we go to today it's just you know the power of these systems and the talent of the people is you, know, you are creating interactive films and it's just it blows me away that you know okay 40 years ago i remember 40 years ago like it was yesterday you know we were working with pixels <laughs> you know <laughs> we were designing games in the 8-bit and i remember the first characters i was designing was on a was on paper you know writing down the the uh, hex hex code equivalent of what i was drawing on the mm -hmm. on the graph uh, squares um i knew this i knew the the industry would continue it's amazing that it is it has surpassed all entertainment including hollywood um and it is a, uh, it's a joy for me that it is could become such a far-reaching industry that hits everybody's lives of every demographic every age these days and it's just wonderful that interactive entertainment and interactive entertainment is mm. such a part of life now. And I'm, I'm honored to have had some small part of it, you know, in the very beginning of the industry. I certainly had a, a Bill Gates or a Bill Budge or, or Trip Hawkins or people that really helped bring this to to masses. But I was a small part of a small group of guys that uh, that helped at the beginning, and it's just such a cool thing to see you know what it is now well let me spin that question like a little bit differently um, um as you're probably aware there is also a huge market these days for what are called uh, retro style games like you know like small teams or, or small teams or even or in some cases or in some cases a single person who's making like 8 16 bit style games on platforms like steam or whatnot um are, are you pleasantly surprised by how big that market is these days um i'm not surprised by how big it mar the market is but I'm very happy for things like the iPhone that came out and allowed us to do games individually again on a platform that had such wide reaching an audience. Um, when I was working with my brother, oh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, or uh, a little bit early, a little bit later on, um, when the iPhone came out. You know, he had done games on the iPhone with just one guy in an office. and and they were incredible things that he had done on the iPhone. And then I had the opportunity to make some products in the iPhone, and I was very happy to see, coming from Majesco, where I was doing games with five or six million dollar budgets, which are small comparatively to some of the games today, and working with massive teams, that there was a platform now where you could do one guy and create a game and i hadn't thought very much about the steam platform but yes you you can do that now too um uh most often i would always need i'm certainly not artistic right? um but yeah it's just it, it's it's wonderful to see that that today you can have games that are played by people that do massive uh um, budgets and massive teams and at the same time you can play a very game it's great that the industry has evolved. Uh, yes, I agree definitely because, like you know, I think that you know, I've always been a gamer who loves playing all uh, like all kinds of games, kind of games. The, the um, you know, for old games, like current to, to current games, like you know, like you said, the market the market's evolved so big these days that's like there's room for everybody. Um, you know, so I uh, so like it's awesome. There's there's awesome that you're still involved with it. And you're still kind of contributing. You're contributing to the market like in your own like small way because you know just that you know somebody. You know, some of your skills and talent should be encouraged. Um, so I am glad you are still finding a niche, a niche, a, a niche in it to like this, like in this crazy, complicated market that we're in, like these days. The the one thing I find disappointing, which is also difficult when you're talking about large 
teams because you don't really have somebody who's the ownership. Um, you know, back then Activision made a great effort to highlight us as the designer and to give us credit, which is really the primary reason why the four four chaps, you know, the four guys, Bob, Al, Larry, Dave, left Atari because they really wanted to have the ability to do their own titles and to do games that they got recognition for. And it's, it's a shame I don't see very much um, that a lot of the creators today are still getting recognition yeah. for, for, for being an artist, you know, an artist, not simply a graphic artist. Um, and it's harder when you have a big team and you have 25 lead programmers. Or, 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 but there's always one guy who is the person who makes the product and is the visionary and helps drag it over the finish helps helps instill that creativity and then it's and I would like to see people like that noted on the box and in the games uh, as the creator uh, yeah I definitely agree with you because like you know I think that you know like you, like you know like uh, um, you know I remember in the old days there was a big fight about like you know like not wanting to release uh, who the uh, pro programmer was? Like a programmer was, like a programmer was. You like, you were fear than being like uh, uh, lured away or whatnot, and that finally changed. Uh, you know, um, you know, uh, like that finally changed around eighty three or so. But it's like nowadays there are a few people whose names whose names do get promoted and will sell products like Miyamoto, like or Kojima. But right. but the, uh, uh, but like but yeah, most of the people. Most people who work on the stuff doesn't get much credit unless you actually sit through the big that the, the, um uh you unless you actually sit through the you know the huge credit screen that that that, that, that pops up toward the end of uh, most games these days. So right, you know, right. I, I definitely agree with you that it would be nice to it definitely it definitely would it definitely that would be nice to have more recognition. Um, and like you know, at least you know, like you know, at least of indie games, you know, like there are a lot of like older uh, uh, programmers, um, you know, who who have gone back to doing indie games like you know the, the, like you know there's a whole bunch of like you know XCR people who mm -hmm. have recently have recently recently come out with a whole bunch of like adventure style games on Steam or uh, on Steam or whatnot and like you know like they're using their names a little bit to parlay the project but they're still working on things now with modern technology that they want to do back then that they couldn't do so it's um so it's like so at least the indie market it, it's easier to get recognition but yeah with like the massive budget games today yeah um, you're right it, it, it's unfortunate that it's unfortunate the geniuses behind those that um they don't get like more recognition right which brings me to my current project um uh a i'm actually uh in the midst of finishing a game uh, on the Atari 2600 that I actually started in 1983 um, while I was at Activision right before the infamous crash of the industry. Um, so it, when you're, uh, when you like to, to talk about that, I'm happy to, to, to go into some detail on what that. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I just had like, um, uh, yeah, so I just had, um, uh, yeah, before we get into that, I just had like one last question because you mentioned like working like mobile games earlier. Um, yes. I've heard some programmers say who are still. Um, um, I, I've heard some programmers say. I think it may be David Crane. Like I'm not sure that that in some ways it's been refreshing working in a mobile game because it's like for the first time since 2600, they're working in a system with very limited hardware and limited processing power, and they're really having to like work their magic again to try to get the game to uh, a good good game to work to work to work like the strange of the hardware um um has that been your experience too absolutely yeah i'm I, I don't know if it was dave who said that but i completely concur it's it's wonderful to have a system that has <clears throat> some restraints but you're able to as i said one guy sit down and uh you know in in you know in c or objective c or or html5 whatever it is that you choose to write in or use you. Um, it's wonderful to be able to sit down and once again have you know you versus the machine, one guy versus the hardware, and be able the hardware and be able to create something that you have conceived in your mind that you want to put on the screen. Um, it's it's the iPhone really really brought that out as a great feature, as a great thing. The thing it did that was really not great is. Hey, I used to do this and sell a cartridge for thirty-four, forty dollars. Mm. Now I have to sell my game, and it's ninety-nine cents. Right. So yeah. it's really hard. Or now it has to be free, and in there has to be in-app purchases, 
or some other means of monetization through ads or through something. Yeah. Um, you know, sadly, it it crushed people who wrote games financially to the point where consumers would say, well, why well, don't want to be, buy a game? I can play it for free. Mm. Yeah, but you don't realize the number of hours and, you know, the number of the, the amount of work that went into that. Uh, and that those artists who did that should receive some compensation for their work. All right. Uh, right. Yeah. And in, in many cases, the whole financial model that the iPhone brought made it more difficult for us to make a living. But it certainly brought us back to the ability to be one on one with a system and have the, the enjoyment of creating something in a small environment with limitation. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's a great point to make also because the fact that, you know, like, you know, like, I mean, you know, I do mobile games some, um, but, and you like, uh, uh, and yeah, you know, I think the, you know, I, I think all the free to play stuff is detriment because the fact that, you know, like people don't, you know, people, you know, people don't like being nickel and dimed. They'd rather just simply just like buy a game like straight up. But, you know, it's a little bit difficult when you have a great game, like um, your great game on there, for example, like Space Invaders vs. Arkanoid. I'm not sure if you play that game, but, um, yes. you know, you know, you know that is a great game. It's $10, yes, but once you buy it, that's it. You have the game. There's no more, there's no ads, there's no, the, you know, there's no bugging for extra money, that kind of stuff. It's like, I wish, you know, I wish there's, you know, I wish those games were promoted more and that market did better on, this, uh, on the system as opposed to all the free-to-play crap that's out there these days. Well, but, but now free-to-play also brings another type of designer. You know, uh, it, when we were designing 2600, it was a different design methodology than the guys who were writing the coin-op games because they were writing games for the, to push people to insert another. So their gameplay was designed to be able to entice people to want to continue the experience by dropping in another coin, um, and we didn't have that, we didn't have that restriction on the console game. So our gameplay methodology was a little bit. Well, today you have the free-to-play games, which is even another methodology where where you want to encourage people to purchase things in the game that are going to help. Uh, and of course, there's that whole debate, you know, skill versus purchase. You know, should I be able to purchase all my powers and levels? To a particular area of the game, or should I actually have to work for it? And I, you know, you have that debate going on in mobile and, and online games uh, continually. Um, but you know, it's just harder to make money with free to play, generally. But if you know how to do it, you can reap incredible rewards. Um, it's just you know, it's unfortunate that that the initial ability to sell games, although Steam has continued that, where you can buy games on Steam. Uh, and other portals have continued that you can still get a piece of the action. And in many cases, more of a piece than you got when you did Super Nintendo or Nintendo games. Because by the time you oh, by the time you finished the game, you paid Nintendo the entire price of manufacturing up front. And the games were created and shipped on a boat over here. Um, you know, there were so many people involved in this distributor and the retailer that the margins were not very big on those games. Um, the designers or creators who got any royalty usually didn't see anything. And really, it was the publishing company that made the lion's share of money. Um, at least when you do games that Steam, you're selling it almost as an individual and net uh, revenues that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get in the old days. Mm. Um, so it's all drawbacks on, on game design methodologies versus the ability to monetize, uh, you know, getting paid for your, for your creativity. Sure, that's a great point, uh, and that's actually like a very good segue, like your current project, um, because you mentioned that you're working on a Toys Hunter game. Um, what kind of tools and programs are you using, play using, play using modern day to create like an older game like that? So in the old days, you know, back in the days of our, when we were in the basement, Gary was doing Donkey Kong, and Gary had worked on Space Jockey, and I was starting Crackbots um, before joining Activision. We had to create our own, as I mentioned. So what we had done is we had Apple IIs, and you could pop the top of an Apple II, and you had the peripheral slots in the back of an Apple. And Gary went off and designed a 4K board with 4K of RAM that plugged into the Apple, um, and out of it came a ribbon cable. We would take a, an Atari game and 
take out the the chip and just have the circuit board, and then then solder a a, um, a chip socket into there and connect it to the the ribbon cable that went from an Atari cartridge board back into the Apple onto this Ford RAM board. And so we would write games on the app, send them electronically to the RAM board, so download them to the RAM board, and then plug it into the Atari and turn it on and see if it worked. And that's how we did development back then. And that didn't offer us the ability to do any breakpoints or single steps, any debugging. Um, but it was a certainly a far ahead from having to burn, you know, four or five or six individual EPROMs every time you made a change. Which, um, when we joined Activision, had designed a wonderful box, we called it. It was a, a blue metal box with an Atari on it. And after we had joined Activision and Apple, when we got the blue box system, we were running off of a large PDP-11. And you could download the code into this that had you know upwards of 8K RAM and turn on the Atari VCS, show you what was in the RAM from the code that you had downloaded. And Bob had written a monitor, much like Wozniak's original app, where it was a monitor single step and breakpoints and and we had a um, very large not so large but like the size of a, of a suitcase logic analyzer on a cart that we would roll around and you could roll it over to an Atari 2600 open it up and then take this this you know large pin uh, clip and actually clip it onto the processor and you had a little you know kind of a little LCD, uh, LCD screen on the much like uh, you would see on an oscilloscope on this logic analyzer, and you could breakpoint uh, the processor at any point in time. So you could say, you know, I wanted to see when this bit in the in the processor address line was was hit, and you had very good debugging with that. You know, back in the old days, um, when we were designing games in Gary's basement, and he was doing Donkey Kong, and he had done Space Jockey, um, Gary had designed a, a peripheral board that we plugged into an Apple II, and we wrote our code on Apple II and, and used this uh, peripheral board that he had designed. It was a 4K board that plugged into the back of an Apple and had a ribbon cable coming out that plugged into an Atari uh, cartridge board. And uh, we used that for development in, in the very early days. We'd, we'd write the code in the Apple memory, we'd download it to the 4K RAM board, and then plug the cartridge with the ribbon cable into the Atari and turn it on and see what lit up. And um, when we moved on to Activision, we were fortunate enough to get a, a PDP-11 system where all of us had this mainframe that we were writing code on. And then Bob Whitehead, one of the uh, founders of Activision, had designed what's called a blue box system, which was a metal box with an Atari on top of it. And the metal box contained about 8K of, uh, of RAM. And we would download from the PDP-11 into that blue box, turn it on, and... Uh, run it off the Atari that was on top of the system. And that wonderful box had all sorts of debugging tools, breakpoints, and single steps. And then in the lab, we had a logic analyzer we could wheel over and, and open up an Atari and clip it onto the processor and be able to do further debugging of what was actually on this, uh, going on in each of the address lines and data lines. So so that's what, that's the kind of systems we had back in the day when we were writing games initially and then at Activision. These days, what I use is a simple um, word processor tool to write the code, and then I use a DOS-based uh, DASM, it's called, uh, 6502 assembler, and then the wonderful tool called Stella, mm. which is just a wonderful, amazing uh, piece of architecture that runs 2600 games just perfectly. Um, I run my code in Stella, and I use all the debugging capabilities in Stella. And it's just incredible that when I first found Stella a few years back, it's like, oh my God, they, you know, they actually programmed into it all of the errors, all of the, all of the quirks that the 2600 had. Yeah. That I remember writing on the actual system where, you know, you'd store a certain cycle, and you know, you'd see something that was a clock or a pixel off where it should be, because when you write to this address at a certain time with a certain missile at a certain size, you know, it's like, oh my God, they actually recreated that stuff. So you'd actually play the most 
the closest thing I have seen to the actual Stella hardware. And so I'm developing the game on that. Um, the game is actually a game I started at Activision after Crackpots. Um, Gary's released Keystone Capers uh, very successfully. Um, and I had then released um, act, uh, Crackpots later in the year of 83. And uh, I wanted to always do a train game because I like railroading, I like, I like railroads. And so I initially put up a display where I wanted to do a little man running along a train. Uh, and I had a beautiful background on with, with cacti and, and freight cars that kind of bobbed up and down. And I had uh, a, a little man, and Gary suggested, why don't you put Keystone Kelly up there? So I put in Keystone Kelly, and he would jump, run across all the train cars, and he'd climb down the ladders on the side of the cars. And um, I was designing what I had envisioned and hoped to be Keystone Capers 2, which I had called Keystone Cannonball. Um, and then the, the crash happened at E3. And I remember making a, a ROM of that game and bringing it home in a red Activision-labeled cartridge and losing it for all time. And through the years of many trade shows and many classic gaming conventions, I would run into John Hardy and the other guys who own the National Video Game Museum, uh, who used to have a traveling show um, for the classic gaming conventions of all of their, their games and their hardware. And I would tell them, I had this game that I started at Activision that never got released, and it was based on Keystone Capers. And I remember about the 20th year of telling them this, they kind of pulled me inside and said, Dan, we think you're full of crap. We've, we, you know, we, we've been hearing about this game for 20 years. You can't find it. You know, oh, you're sure you'll, you'll show it to us one day. And, you know, about two years ago, Gary had turned me on to this website um, that was called 8-Bit Workshop, and it showed um, a website that you could program the Atari 2600 on, and it would light up like a real Atari, and I was like, oh my god, this is so cool. And so I started playing around with that website, and I said, you know, I'm going to recreate that, that Keystone Capers 2 game I never finished that I lost. And I started rewriting the kernels and made a screen of the game that I envisioned in my head, that I remembered I did in 1983. Well, about six months later, I'm cleaning out my offsite storage. And lo and behold, uh, I am in there and I pull out a cartridge out of a box and it was Keystone Cannonball. <laughs> and I ran out of the, out of the, the offsite. I was there with my, uh, my significant other. She was helping me go through it. She's actually the one who pulled it out and said, what's this? And I said, oh my God, that's Keystone Cannonball. <laughs> and I grabbed the cartridge, ran out of the offsite, and I called John Hardy, who uh, is the head of the National Video Game Museum, who always said that, Dan, I think you're full of crap. <laughs> and I said, John, you never guess what I have in my hand. And lo and behold, he was visiting his, his mother in Long Island, New York. He's, uh, he initially lives in Texas now. And I said, John, I have it in my hand. And he said, Dan, I'm coming over tomorrow. And he came over, and I brought out of my offsite an old VCS that I cleaned up. And he came over and we plugged it in. Oh my God, the screen lit up. And it was Keystone Cannonball from 1983. I hadn't seen since the day I made, the, made it in the lab and brought it home. Hmm. And you know something? I compared it to, the, to the, the version I had been starting to play with on that website. And my current version looked better than the old one. <laughs> and I, I made some announcements and the press ran some stories. And I eventually gave the cartridge to John, and it's now part of the exhibit at the National Video Game Museum. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized two years ago that, oh my goodness, there's a whole group of homebrew people mm -hmm. still writing games for the Atari 2600. Where have I been? I didn't know this. <laughs> and um, I said, you know, I think there's a market out there because retro gaming, as you brought up earlier, is so big and is back. And so I decided I'm going to use the tools in the current day world, and I'm going to finally finish that Keystone Capers game from what would now be 38 years ago. Yeah. Um, uh, since I don't own the rights to Keystone Capers, and I don't own the rights to that code, I, I started rewriting the game using that tool uh, a few months earlier, six months earlier, and it's that code base that I, that I have now continued 
So I'm, I'm not using any of the code from Activision because I don't have the rights to it. I'm not calling it Keystone Cavers, and I'm not using Keystone Kelly because I don't have the rights to that brand. Um, but I am using a distant cousin of Keystone, Keystone Kelly um, called uh, Casey O'Kelly, who is in the railroad business out west while Keystone was still dealing with Harry Hooligan at the, uh, at the, um, the Southwick's uh, department store back in New York. So um, the game is now going to be coming out. It's now called Gold Rush. And it is the, the basic game design from the original 1983 game. Um, you can check it out and see it on my game site, uh, www.dankitchen.com or dankitchengames.com. And the game uh, I'm finishing is going to be released as it was, as it would have been in 1983, as an original Activision cartridge. Um, the name of the publishing company that I have is called Tiki Vision, uh, as an homage to Activision, because I like all things um, kind of Polynesian. And my my regular development company that I do a lot of work for for people in the industry is called Tiki Interactive. Again, because I like Polynesia and and things that are Hawaiian, and so. I'm going to be recreating the actual experience of a gamer who had purchased an Atari Activision game in 1983. Um, my package is actually done. You can see it on my website. It is very, very much reminiscent of the original Activision games, uh, the style, the look. Um, the game will come out um, in a cartridge form, which could be purchased in a box with a manual, uh, with a poster. Um, in addition to that, I'm going to have a, a game club where you can get a an Activision looking patch for the Golden Spike Club. You can see the patch on my site as well. Um, and I'm going to actually create a line of games on the Atari 2600 that that call back to the original Activision days, that look like Activision days, that have clubs, that have patches, and that really that really resonate with players who remember the joy of getting an Activision game and the fun of being part of the clubs. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm rebuilding a small brand of Activision games in Tiki Vision that will be released with the first game of Gold Rush uh, in, at the end of this year. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great story. Uh, so, uh, so it sounds like a programming uh, programmer working on the games like proceeding to a pretty like, uh, good pace. It is. It's going at a good pace. I've, uh, you know, I have a regular job with my development company. Um, I actually have a studio in India, and we do a lot of artwork for different online games uh, that are on portals. Uh, we've done work with a number of the, the head companies that do uh, do mobile games, and so that somewhat keeps me busy. Um, but I, I have passionately focused on continuing to work on this. Um, I actually was going to do a Kickstarter uh, to fund the manufacturing of the game. Um, however, that I put off for a little bit because of the current... Uh, corona pandemic um, and honestly I think people really need to keep their money to support their families when they when jobs are, are being dropped so quickly and mm. people have to really find a way to put food on the table um, I, I'm not uh, focusing on a on uh, this time on the on the, the Kickstarter for for the manufacturing simply because money is needed for people in so many other more important ways because of the situation we're currently going through as a as a global community uh, but I, I will be uh, hoping to get the game out released this year uh, as a cartridge in a box, uh, or you can buy it as an individual individual cartridge, um, or you can buy it actually as a collector's edition, which I will autograph, uh, and you will have some some other uh, things that I've put out on the on my my website. For instance, I have a a, a Gold Rush Gulch uh, newspaper that I print or that I put out digitally. That there's three versions of right now, or two versions, uh, which is kind of a old-fashioned West Western-style newspaper with hints in the in the in the page of the newsprint uh, mm. about the game. Um, so I'll be putting those out as actual little newspapers you can have. And then for the last two years of going to different game conferences throughout the years, throughout those, that time period, I've created uh, trading cards for the game. And I've released one at every game show that I've, I've been invited to as a speaker. And so I'm going to do a line of trading cards uh, for Gold Rush that you can also see on my site. Um, that will be a collector's edition of trading cards. 
for each of the enemies and each of the objects in the game. Um, and that, of course, you can purchase and will probably be given as as a uh, as a tier of rewards for the for the people who, who pledge on the on the Kickstarter. Cool. Um, um, so it, it's overall, I'm having a great time writing it. Uh, I've got my second game already designed and partially written, um, which is kind of an, an Activision game in the style of what what Stephen Cartwright would write. Um, you mentioned before, Barnstorming was one of the games you had. I actually love Steve's games. I love Barnstorming. I love Sequest. And the next game I'm doing is uh, is kind of a um, it's an ocean liner that goes across the Atlantic. Um, the game is called Bon Voyage, and it's kind of a mix between Sequest and uh, Barnstorming. And it's kind of a game that I think I, I would have envisioned while I was at Activision again in 1983. So I'm hoping to do a line of games that people cool. will enjoy on this system. Yeah, I definitely think there'd be some. Uh, uh, yeah, because I definitely think like like. Um... Charlie, uh, like your name alone is still very well known with the retro community, as I'm sure you know about. And the, uh, as you mentioned, the 2600 community is still very big. It's amazing just how many homebrews and homebrewers are still working, still working, they're still working like that market. So I'm sure there'd be a very like, you know, like, um, you know, like, uh, like good market out there to start your games to. Like we're very like you're looking forward to it. Um, and you and hopefully, you know, hopefully more modern gamers will be encouraged to uh, give it a look also to see how like, you know, like kind of like how, you know, how games were uh, back then, that kind of stuff. Right. And I'll be porting the game to modern systems, to steam, to the mobile games, uh, mobile platforms. I was honored uh, a f uh, about six months ago that someone did a Commodore 64 version of Crackpots. Oh, and so they've reached out to me and wanted to do a C64 version of Gold Rush when I'm done. So I will take the IP and, and put it on the various current systems so that people can see kind of what a, an old school programmer would create. So what's it been like um, uh, going back to working on to working on the architecture for architecture like the first time in like so many years? You know, it took a little while for me to remember it. Um, of course, I remember the basics, but then I would sit there and say, hmm, you know, I remember we had a code, you know, we had a, we had a, a packet of code that we used to do to be able to horizontally position the object and I just don't remember how many cycles that took. And so I literally took um, about a month or two to almost back engineer the system and relearn it. Um, you know, I knew the basic architecture, but when I got into writing the code, I was like, hmm, you know, there was a, I knew I had a system to do something and I would have to go back and take a look at it. Um, I was fortunate enough that when John acquired the original cartridge, um, he dumped the code for me. And there was something I'd done in the original code. Um, at Activision or on the system, you couldn't really have two separate objects, more than two separate objects on the screen without Flickr, which is what Atari did to, to enable doing Pac-Man and other games. And you, you really couldn't have more than six objects on a screen across a horizontal line. I was able in the original cartridge to have eight wheels on the train that were not flickering, that were solid wheels and I, I had forgotten the technique which I had used to do that. So fortunately, from from the code dump that John Hardy did, I was able to look back at that and say, oh, I remember what I did. And so going back to the system, it took me a few months to learn the nuances of, of the code that I, I had written. But after that, it all came flooding back into my head. And it's you know just as if I was sitting now at an Apple II or, or at a, a, a VT100 terminal connected to a PDP-11 in the other room, you know, sitting in, in my Glenrock office at Activision. It's all pretty much the same thing, and I'm, I'm having a great time returning to the system and, and writing for it. So what uh, so what do you think the ROM size would have been for the game had it been released <laughs> back then versus the versus, versus what ROM size that you're using now? Good question. Um, it would have been 8K back then. Uh, I think we could do 8K at that point. Um, you know, it's around that time, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, let me just go back a little bit into my memory. Um, Dave had done, of course, Pitfall 2, uh, and Pitfall 2 used the DPC chip. Um, Pitfall came out a year later in 1984. Um, I may have been fortunate enough to use the DPC chip because I know that Activision wanted to initially use that chip for other games other than Pitfall 2, but that was the only game that utilized it. So I think I would have probably had a little bit of added RAM and 8K of, of ROM to come out with the game. But obviously today, in today's time period, 
you know, boy, chips are so cheap at that size that uh, Crackpots was created with one 4K bank. Um, Gold Rush will now be created with 32 4K banks. Wow. So I have 32 times the memory I had in Crackpots. Um, but I still only have 128 bytes of RAM. I'm not using any additional hardware except the regular bank switching that we used at Activision. I do have more banks, but some of the homebrew games today use the DPC chip technology. Um, what they do, I guess, is they take apart old Pitfall 2 games, right. and they use, they use the chips, or they, they have custom programmed logic array chips, PLAs, that are coded to act like the DPC chip. And a lot of the guys who do homebrew are using either Atari Basic, I think they call it, or other enhancements to enhance the RAM and the ROM space. I'm writing it old school as if I was just writing with the hardware, no additional support, um, except that I have 32K, uh, 32 4K banks. Um, so that's the difference. Back then it would have been an 8K cartridge. Today it's a 32K cartridge. And are you hoping to do all the work on the game yourself? I'm doing all the, all of the work. I'm writing it from scratch. I'm doing all the art. I'm doing all the coding. I'm doing all the audio. It will be a game written 100% from beginning to end by me. Mm. Uh, no other support. No other artwork. No nothing. Yeah. Well, yeah. It sounds like a great passion project. So I'm really looking forward to it. It is. And if you go to my site, DanKitchenGames.com, you can scroll down to uh, just a little bit away from, a little bit below the top, and you'll see a video of uh, a version of the game probably that now is about three or four months old. I need to put a new version up there. Right. But you can see the current uh, game. You know, back in the 80s, 83, I had um, a caboose, I had a boxcar, and I had an engine that wasn't done. Um, currently on the current system, um, I have something like 40 game, forty uh, train cars um, mm. from all sorts of different styles. And, and you can go into the game cars, uh, into the train cars, and kind of like in pitfall you had the above area for the for the for the jungle then you could go down into the cavernous area below i have that where you can go into train cars that are linked together so you can play above the game, uh, the train and then pop into a train car and run many screens to the right or left uh, you know through a bunch of different box cars and and different types of enemies and different types of puzzle puzzles going on there awesome uh, yeah i remember like so, yeah, like I remember when you first announced, like announced you're working on this project, like you found the game, uh, it really caused a minor sensation in the Joy community because it's like Activision was so close to the chest, like, like their projects. Nobody had any idea, um, you know, um, you know they didn't even start this game back then. So to have this suddenly announcement come out was like a bombshell. Yes, I did. I kept it close to the vest back then. Um, it was not far enough along to share with Activision. And frankly, you know, when the, when the, when the crash happened, or when we knew the crash was coming, they, they had soured on the system. Um, there were actually a lot of games that were released after the crash right. that never meant to see the light of day. So John Van Ryzen's first game was Cosmic Commuter, yeah. which he, he yeah. wrote and we shelved because yeah. we didn't think it was good enough. Then he went off and did Hero, which was incredible. Well, and he was... Then, uh, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I was just going to say that real quick. Uh, I, you know, I disagree. Cosmic Commuter is a great game, I think. And Cosmic Cumulator is a fun game, yeah. But back then, um, they didn't think it had it. it you know, it, it, it cut cut the mustard, as we say. Um, also, Bob had done Sky Jinx uh, right after skiing, and didn't think it was good enough to come out. So for it, it sat on the shelf for two years. Um, and then when the resurgence came, or uh, after the crash, when they saw there was somewhat a resurgence in the middle eighties, um, then some of these games came out. Um, another one was was Private Eye was a game that Bob did mm, yep. that never wanted to be released, but it came out. Um, I actually have another Activision game that I had written that it was almost a hundred percent complete. Um, it was a very kind of it was a wacky game. Um, it was called we we called it the the damn game. <laughs> you know you know where's that damn game? And what it was it was. It was a screen of a, a dam, like Hoover Dam. And you had platforms, you know, three or four across the screen, and ladders, like you see many of the games of that time period. 
And you at the top of the screen, you had this, this reservoir with this, of course, the beautiful Activision sunset, had a sun that was, that was glowing and sparkling on the water. And, at the, and, and then on either side of that, you had these two big red industrial, like red lights, like you'd see in a submarine, kind of the ones encased in, in gray metal with kind of a, a screen around them. And what would happen is the whole screen would shake, you know, like an earthquake, and a little crack would develop. And out of it would pour water, and it was beautifully done, kind of like the way Howard did the um, did the uh, the band of of uh, of of stuff in um, Yar in uh, Yar's Revenge, where he actually used code to make that middle area that you have to go through, so it looked really cool and fluid as he, as he made it animate. What I did is I used code, and you actually saw the little pixels in different colors fall down onto the platform as a stream of water and you had to run over and I used Keystone Kelly in a little yellow like he was the guy on top of the uh, you know on top of the fish box that, that you would see from from one of these companies um, and he would run over and press the button and you you'd, you'd cement the hole and the hole would go away and another one would happen somewhere else and then two would happen and you'd be running across the road across the whole screen cementing these little places to to stop the water and as you were doing this and as the water was coming into the screen every scan line of the game from the very bottom started to change to a blue color and so it would eventually that the water would eventually come all the way up and you had to go down into the water and you had little bubbles coming out of out of the guy's head as you were trying to fix things and you you had to to eventually either succumb to the water and have this side of the dam filled up with water, or you were able to keep it at bay for the longest period of time. Um, I actually almost finished that game. Uh, didn't give it to Activision at the time because it was some uh, kind of one of these projects we had worked on that in the lab we had two or three games at a time that we were playing around with. And I'm not sure if I ever made a ROM of that game. Mm. Uh, and I'm hoping one day that that will be the next headline. That you know, <laughs> never released game by Dan Kitchen is found in some other but one of my storages um but yeah it, it was unique that we had a, that i had a game from activision that never saw the light of day that nobody except very few people ever heard of mm. um so yeah it was a very fun story and i'm very happy to have it finally and finally have it done after all these years of wondering mm. what if well you found one game uh finally after all these years maybe that other one that could pop up at some point at some point hopefully it will and if it, and, and if not i may actually rewrite it on the Atari after I get this game in Bon Voyage launched. The gameplay mechanism sounds a little bit like another unreleased 2600 game that I'm aware of. Uh, like Save Mary, the that Todd Fry was working on, where it's like you're trying to like save a woman by building a platform under her, like above like a raging uh, raging river as water fills up the screen. So the game mechanic sounds yeah. a little similar to that. Right. Was that, was that, I think it was Save Mary? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I remember seeing, yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, uh, but, well, you know, a lot of a lot of the games back then, uh, you know, somewhat drew upon the, uh, you know, the arcade games. I know that we had seen a game called Apple Panic, or not a uh, Space Panic, which was, I think, what I primarily built the game around because it had ladders and platforms, as as many of those did back then. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, awesome. Well, um, looking forward to it for sure. Uh, are there any other projects or things you're working on right now that you want to plug? Um, you know, I'm actually also. Uh, hoping to kickstart later this year my first tabletop game, uh, which is called Drive-In, um, which is a tabletop game where where two to five players are, are sitting uh, at a 1950s-style drive-in. And you're parking your car to get the best position of the screen and to get the most points by by creating the, the longest contiguous line of your car color around mm -hmm. the drive-in. And it comes with a little mini-game of of intermission and um it's also based on a number of uh classic b movies mm. uh, and one version of the game you can actually download an app to your ipad or iphone and use the trailers from these b movies to actually uh interact with the gameplay so huh. you can you can download like house of haunted hill will be one of the games and as you're playing you have these movie cards and if you happen to park your car when the dice roll says that House on Haunted Hill is on the screen, uh, you can actually replace the cardboard screen with your iPad 
and actually play the trailer for House on Haunted Hill from the 1950s movie. Oh, and cool. it really, it turns the whole board game into a miniature drive-in theater. Yeah, it sounds like a very like unique game idea. Yeah, so that's one of the games that I will be coming out as my first tabletop game later this year. Awesome. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, well, I well, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. Uh, you know, about the system, the system, the system, like about your other experiences, the game industry, what, uh, the, you know, the game industry, like whatnot. Um, you know, it, you know, it's a pleasure to have you on here. So I appreciate it like a lot. Absolutely, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be here, Greg. I thank you, um, and uh, I wish you great success with the podcast. It's always wonderful mm-hmm. to hear from you and to. Uh, and to follow what you're doing. Well, thank you. Uh, I um, so I just kind of had one last question, thinking about like to kind of wrap things up. Um, you know, this is complicated, but you know, kind of answered. Um, I'm, um, but I'm interested, like hearing the, what, what you think. Uh, you're somebody who's been around the industry for a very long time. You've seen a lot of it. Um, uh, you've seen a lot of things happen in the industry, uh, rise and fall, and rise again, and some of the trends and whatnot. Uh, if you if um play, if you had to make an educated if you had to make an educated guess, uh, based on what you've seen, like you've seen like experiences, where do you think the industry is going to be going in the next like ten years or so? Um, you know, what do your you know what do you think are some of the trends or trends the trends that may happen with that that may happen that may happen what's going to happen to the video games, uh, like in the years to come? That's uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I wish. I wish I was somewhat of a fortune teller or a time traveler. Um, uh, I, you know, um, certainly the quality of the graphics is going to increase. I think uh, the games will become even more playable, interactive narratives um, that will uh, that will will uh, induce a lot of emotion. Um, when I was working in the early two thousands. I had the opportunity to do some some games with Hollywood brands and with Hollywood people, uh, and I know that in one setting, um, um, Jerry Bruckheimer was getting involved in the games that that we were talking about doing, and you know, expressing game scenarios that were almost theatrical that would really drive the emotion of a of the watcher or the player, like one does in a in a theatrical film. I think you're going to see more of that. You're going to see games that that really induce fear or love or or excitement or suspense. You know, very much like the Hitchcock movies of, of that are classic. Um, I it's, I think it's wonderful. The installed base is, is people who are young children all the way up to adults and seniors. Um, I think you'll see more content for the aging um, baby boomers. Uh, you know, that usually brings about more puzzle games, more games that are fun or easy to pick up. I think you're going to see the niche, really hardcore games kind of stay in its own small, small niche, although it's a huge niche. Don't get me wrong. You know, Call of Duty is, is billions and billions. Um, but I, I, and I think you're going to start to see maybe um, some of the traditional board games be utilizing things like apps, like mm. Drive-In is doing, and like right. I know some of the other cutting-edge tabletop games are doing. And, you know, tabletop games, people think of board games, sure, I grew up playing Sorry and, and Monopoly and, you know, and Life. But as you know, in the last 10 or 12 years, it's an incredible resurgence of tabletop games with yes. with, with games like, uh, like uh, you know, Ticket to Ride and and and, and and games that are just breaking barriers of all sorts of uh, of, of genres, uh, Catan and all those games are just, you know, my daughter is, is in her late 20s and she is playing board games. And I think those kind of games will begin to, the people who make, who make video games are, are that age. And I think they'll start to maybe cross over to digital board games to a point where you'll have traditional games with digital components. And I think you'll just be seeing some of the RPG and board game mechanics coming over more so into video games, kind of like they would, were doing in the 80s right. with a lot of the Nintendo games. Those RPG games were great. You know, those, by, by, by uh, uh, some of those, you know, uh, Utopia and other of those games were just ultimate. Other of those games were just incredible. 
and I think you may see a resurgence of those, of those in the future. Ah, yes, definitely. Uh, you know, like, you know, most of those board games you already mentioned, Ticket to Ride and Katana and whatnot, they already have been ported over... Um, you ported over... Right, digitally. Right, digitally, yes. right. So it's like, because, yeah, because, yeah, because those games are great, but you don't always have somebody physically around you to play them with. So, like, you know, putting right. them... Uh, you're putting them online so you can play them against other people, like, it's great, I think. So... Right, right. And I'm thinking more, more along the lines of, of, of traditional tabletop games with a digital component. Right. Um, this is really what I meant to say, which... I know that some games, I think there's True Crimes or one of those tabletop games where you actually use the iPhone to, to dig into the mysteries and be able to research uh, certain clues and certain certain uh, uh, evidence. I think I think you'll see a, a cross of that. And I think you're just going to see, uh, you know, more of the Red Dead Redemption and, and games that are theatrical-like films that people can play. And and hopefully there'll, there'll be more interactivity in them. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just, and I think you'll see them more for more for the general audience and less for just the, just the uh, just the poor game game player. Um, hopefully, we'll you know we'll have films film based or games that are like films that'll reach you know every demographic of player. Yes, um, and not just not just ones that are the hardcore GTA three or GTA players and the hardcore Red Dead Red Dead Redemption players. Right. Yes. Is it- uh, yep, exactly. And also, I think that, you know, as the gaming population gets older, uh, then, uh, gets older, video games are very slowly losing that reputation that they had about being just like, you know, like, you know, like losers sitting in their uh, um, your parents' basements, like playing games all day. So, <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of gone now with, with games like uh, Candy Crush and, you know, games that, that average normal people who didn't usually play games got an opportunity to enjoy. I know. Back in our day, it was, you know, you were playing, kids were playing. My audience was 14-year-old boys who were very finicky, who, you know, could make or break a game at any time. Fortunately, now there's a much wider, broad audience. There. You have a chance, if your game doesn't appeal to one demographic group, it appeals potentially to another. Plus, with the current, like, quarantine situation going on, a lot of people, like, are probably, uh, I mean, that's encouraging people to play more games uh, or branch out in other games that they might not uh, 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 you know, uh, you like to otherwise. So who knows what kind of trends will start after the, uh, after this ends? And we go back to the saying that I said earlier in our interview that man will always use his most sophisticated technology to entertain himself. Right. So, and, and that's that's what I hope we'll be doing in the future as well. I agree with you 100%. So uh, thank you very much again, uh, Daniel, for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, um, you know, and to pick your brain about all this stuff. Uh, you know, it's been a great interview, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, I will be looking forward to hearing other interviews on your podcast in the future. Okay. Hope to have some of them soon. So thank you very much. Uh, everybody, Dan Kitchen, I appreciate you being on the podcast with me. And uh, and uh, best of luck with your Gold Rush and other future endeavors, sir. Very good. And remember, you can go to, to dankitchengames.com and check it out and uh, see what other other games I will be coming out with in the future. Absolutely. So thank you again. And uh, everybody out there for listening, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much as always. And uh, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye now.